Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right, everybody. Welcome to OIG, UPIC, and Mifuku Investigations. What are they and how are they targeted uh, against organizations? My name is Sean Weiss. I am the Vice President of Compliance for Doctors Management. I'm also a partner with the firm. Uh, joining me today on this webinar is Eric Rubenstein, who is the Director of Litigation and Fraud, Waste, and Abuse Support with Advise Health. Uh, Eric is a retired, I almost, say I almost slipped. I almost slipped and said former. And and Eric would have gotten mad because he, he thinks that means something nefarious transpired that led to his departure. So he'd rather say he's just old and that's why they let him go. Because it, it, It's an retired. interesting perspective because I've got military friends that, shy away from certain terminology when they when they talk about that and it's always that but they're always don't call me x call me former there you so. go former and that voice that you all just heard is another one of my good friends matt lahan who serves as general counsel uh for a biotech company out of california uh matt is a do you like former or X? Uh, I certainly prefer former <laughs> over X. All right. So Matt's a former uh, law enforcement professional. Uh, he was a police officer with the Dallas Police uh, Force. Uh, he is a former UPIC investigator and a former Mapuku investigator. Um, Eric is, as I said, a retired uh, Office of Inspector General, uh, Special Agent. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about both of their backgrounds as we move through our presentation today. But really, this is a panel discussion. Uh, my job as the moderator is to pose some questions and then to simply get out of the way of these two gentlemen and let them share with you their knowledge of the inner workings of these organizations what drives investigations against physicians, physician practices, non-physician practitioners, hospitals, healthcare organizations, irrespective of where you are in the country, what your special, you know, specialty is? I think it comes down to, and I think the gentleman would probably agree with me on this, it's no longer a matter of if, it's simply a matter of when. So with that said, I think... <clears throat> The place where I would like to start um, first is you pick investigation. So, um, Matt, I'm going to start with you first um, because you picks are ever present. They are a significant part of the current landscape. They've been a significant part of the landscape since they transitioned from um, zone program integrity contractors uh, uh, several years back. 
But even before that, there was a significant presence, right, with the Z-Picks themselves. So my question to you is this, what is a U-Pick? Right. Yeah, and, and that's a really good question because I think there's a great deal of, of confusion out in the provider community where they view the UPIC as simply just a, another Medicare contractor whose purpose is to identify overpayments and, and collect money. Um, you know, uh, what needs to be understood is Nefarious isn't necessarily the the correct term. I guess it's nefarious if you're if you're in the the provider community. But really, what the UPIC is is a, an investigative agency who uh, is is really uh, directed to identify fraud, waste, and abuse, and develop cases for referrals to law enforcement, like Eric's old agency, right? HHSOIG. Although they have the capability to uh, refer to other law enforcement agencies, depending on the direction that HHS wants to go in, right? It, it kind of started as the benefits integrity unit within the Medicare carriers themselves. And then that concept has evolved over the years from, you know, a benefits integrity unit to a program safeguard contractor to a ZPIC to now a UPIC. And with each machination, uh, CMS has kind of granted them broader access to information so that their investigations can be more complete, more thorough, and and they can do a better job of, of identifying that potential fraud, waste, and abuse and build stronger cases to refer to, to law enforcement. So that's a great, that's a great explanation of what a UPIC is. As a former investigator for a UPIC, can you talk about the type of activities that generate an investigation by one of these, you know, one of these uh, safeguard contractors? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the UPIC is, is much like any other investigative agency, right? Whether it be HHS, OIG, whether it be FBI, whether it be my old outfit, uh, the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, they they receive information that can be the, the, the predicate for an investigation from a multitude of sources. What I think makes the UPIC a little bit more unique is that within their statement of work, within their contract, right? And, and you can find their duties and responsibilities in, in the online manuals. I think it's you know, 100-08, Chapter 4, which is the Program Integrity Manual for the online manual, right? That explains what they do. What's really interesting is that they are essentially mandated to utilize data analysis as a means of of identifying these these fraudulent trends. And, And they can do different types of data analysis, right? They can look at specific provider types. They can look at specific procedure codes, specific modifiers, they can drill down to a geographic location, right? Uh, and then each one of these analytical tools doesn't necessarily operate in a vacuum. They can build upon each other. And that's where the strength of the, this data uh, comes out, right? You can take one data set and bounce it off another and really start to see the disparity or the improbability of the service that's 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 being performed. So, you know, their their strength uh, is their data analysis tools that they use to develop cases. But then, of course, you know, they're going to get complaints from the provider patient community. 
Um, they can get complaints from, uh, well, not, not necessarily complaints, but because HHS OIG, and I'm sure Eric can speak more clearly to this, but HHS OIG runs a, a, a tips hotline. And that tips hotline gets flooded with information from the provider, the patient community, right? The general community at large. And because HHS is, is so shorthanded, a lot of times they'll, they'll uh, funnel those HHS TIPS calls to, to the UPIC to develop and, and do the initial analysis on and see if there's any merit there. Uh, so again, it's, it's, uh, and you can also have, yeah, you know, a, 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 a proactive investigator, right? Uh, an investigator that pays attention to things going on out in the out in the country might see a news article that references a potential fraud scheme that's outside of their particular jurisdiction, and they might want to uh, initiate some sort of data analysis or review on on the, a similar type of service to see if that's uh, being uh, if, if that's reflected in their region as well. So again, it's it's a multitude of reasons with the emphasis being put on their data analysis capabilities. So Eric, I want to I want to drive a question over to you um, because you and I have so many opportunities throughout the course of a week to have conversations um, about fraud, waste, and abuse, about um, different cases that we're both engaged in, investigations that we're working on, things of that nature. Talk about, because Matt really just lined it up beautifully, um, talk about the critical importance of data analytics for a practice, the, the importance of them running utilization reports. Yep. You know, how, how can they use that information to understand the potential for being a target of an investigation? Well, first and foremost, one of the things that Matt said, which is probably the most important piece for the UPICs, is that as it went from benefit integrity within the carriers or the fiscal intermediaries to the uh, PSCs, program safeguard contractors, to the ZPICs, to the UPICs, is that each time that occurred, there was a broadening of the geographic purview that that organization that had that contract had it. And Matt's point really on data analytics is really this, is that as the organizations became fewer and they took over larger swaths of the country, it allowed them to have greater access to more data which allowed them to see things that they wouldn't normally see. So, you know, the great example I like to give on the data piece before we kind of get to this is when I was an agent in New York, Empire Medicare Services was the uh, carrier. So they did part B. They were also the part A fiscal intermediary, but they had all of the boroughs except for Queens. Queens, New York was with GHI, Group Health Incorporated. And that's at the fiscal intermediary or the carrier level. But at the time, benefit integrity was contained within whoever it was that had the carrier or the fiscal intermediary contract. So if you were working on a case, and this, is, this, is, this was common for us in New York, you were working on a case in which the provider had multiple offices, and one of them was in Queens and one of them was somewhere else, you had to go to two different places for data. Yeah. 
And the data wasn't data that looked the same. It wasn't like there was structured data as if, you know, column A was this, column B was this. Your GHI data and your Empire Medicare Services data was different. And so as these things kind of morphed and as they morphed into what are now the Z-PICs, so first, and then ultimately the U-PICs, you know, first and foremost, there's been a standardization of data and that data all comes from the same repository now. So it doesn't really matter. But more importantly is that when an investigation is going on and you have a potentially a border state or something like that, where you don't have what are now known as the max, because the Medicare administrative contractors are doing A and B, what you don't have anymore is them being the holders of the data. It's now in a central repository through CMS and the UPICs now have that have that data. But um, you know, getting now to that next piece, which is the importance of data. Just this morning, I did a presentation for the uh, Columbus, Georgia chapter of the APC, and I spent a lot of time talking about this. And I do this a lot with my APC people because a lot of them are in uh, revenue cycle management. Uh, a lot of them are in kind of compliance roles. You know, and I say all the time that as a provider group, whether it's one doctor or a hundred doctors, you should be running reports on what your utilization management is. And I didn't really know what the term utilization management was until I started with advising consulting, but it's basically a billing history. It's where is all of your money coming from? Where is your Where are your billings going and where is your money coming from? And you need to look at that. Your cumulative billings tell you where your areas of I will say targeted or focused reviews are going to be. You know, the OIG looks at things like quarterly trending, yearly trending, year over year trending. Um, the commercial payers do that. Uh, you know, law enforcement is doing that. You know, they're looking at the outliers. So, you know, my great example is, you know, everybody is now modifier 25 is back on the radar. It never went off the radar, but now it's like it's with a vengeance. It's back on the radar. And I have a provider group I'm doing work with where they were told by their billing company to add modifier 25 to every E&M. They're a new practice. The guys that run the practice were their emergency room doctors. It's an urgent care center. They've never done this before. And they are putting modifier 25 on every single claim, whether there is another service or not. And I said to them, look, at the end of the day, so here's where your analytics are important. Putting that modifier 25 on a claim like that is not going to have an effect on payment. You're still going to get paid what you're going to be paid. But what you've done is you've put yourself into a world where now you are going to be an outlier. And now if your E&Ms were not going to be subject to review, you've now put yourself on the radar where your E&Ms are now going to be subject to review. Meaning if you were billing for a lot of 992, 12s and 3s and you weren't using modifier 25, you'd probably find that you're not anywhere on a bell curve or anything. But once you put modifier 25 on, you've now put yourself into another category where now you're going to be looked at relative to other people who are using modifier 25 with their E&Ms, and you're going to be outside that bell curve, which is now going to create a scenario. And that's what the OIG is doing. We would get data reports on a provider, for example, and it would be eight or 10 tabs. It would be uh, busiest work, uh, busiest day of the week, busiest day of the month, busiest day of the year. 
So we'd see the top number of claims. We would say the most, you know, the highest number of dollar claims in a given day, month, or year. Uh, quarterly trend, yearly, top codes, top codes with modifiers, most frequently used modifier. Um, you know, we would look at things uh, greater than 12 hours or 14 hours, whatever the metric would be for in a given day with E&Ms. So these are, right. you know, I just rattled off eight or 10 metrics that the OIG is looking at. Now, keep in mind that when the OIG is looking at these metrics, they are typically only looking at these metrics initially for Medicare claims. Typically. Right. So, well, hold on. Yeah. Hold on to that, because I want to I want to get more into the OIG in just a few minutes. But I, I think your point is 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 well taken on the different data points that practices, hospitals, health systems, irrespective of your size, irrespective of your, your geographic location, regardless of um, your specialty. These are universal metrics that should be looked at these are these are identifiers that can point to an outlier or an aberrance <clears throat> matt i want to go i want to go back to you for a minute um so as a former investigator um and and i've heard a whole bunch of people say this to me i got audited by a upit right okay um right. Let let's let's clear this up. Does a UPIC conduct audits? So I mean that's a really good question. Uh, there are instances in where a UPIC is going to conduct an audit, right? Uh, I mean, a, a, an audit function is is something that a UPIC can perform, but the vast majority of what they are doing, and again, I, I point to the program integrity manual, right? that spells out their their responsibilities it's very investigative centric right they're supposed to the upic is supposed to have offices that are in close proximity to a heat location right that tells you right then and there that they they have a different relationship with law enforcement than your rack or your mac or any other type of 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 medicare contractor right they are uh, one of the metrics by which they are measured is the number of referrals that they submit to law enforcement, right? So it's it's how many cases they are investigating. They are looked at for what law enforcement is doing with those investigations, right? So it's not just, hey, we sent 50 referrals to law enforcement. Are those are those actionable by law enforcement, right? Are they are they cases that they look at, take and run with, or is it something that they put on the back burner? Right. And, 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 you know, a UPIC is supposed to keep in constant contact with law enforcement. I think it's every 90 days. Eric, you'd probably know better or remember better. Um, but every 90 days, that UPIC investigator has to reach out to law enforcement to see what they're doing with the case and how's it going, right? That's right. Your yeah. other contractors, Medicare contractors, are not doing that, do not have that type of relationship. So it's really the UPIC is designed to investigate. Uh, and they're designed to investigate for the purpose of referring cases to law enforcement. That is their big kind of meat and potatoes of what they do. They have all these other ancillary functions. Auditing might be part of it. Medical review could be part of it. But all these kind of fall under that that broader spectrum of an investigation with the purpose of getting it to law enforcement. Great. Thank you for clearing that up. All right. So 
before we move on to our our next topic, I want to I, I want to say something and then you know let both of you kind of uh, weigh in on this. When a practice or a hospital or a DME provider receives a UPIC letter or UPIC notification of investigation, this is something that should not go on to the back burner. This is something that needs to be dealt with in the same regards as receiving a civil investigative demand from the Department of Justice and or uh, a request for information from the Office of Inspector General. Would that be a fair statement, uh, Matt, Eric? From my perspective, yeah, as, as, a, as an, a, an attorney that, that used to be in private practice and, and advise clients, I would say that if you got a letter from the UPIC, you could treat it, you should treat it similar to, say, a subpoena uh, in whatever context you were receiving a subpoena, right? Because these letters typically have uh, timeframes associated with them. So you have to be responsive within a certain timeframe. And providers need to understand if you don't respond, within a certain time frame to that UPIC letter or demand for information, the UPIC has the authority to suspend your payments. That's that's the big stick that they carry, right? If you don't, fine, you don't wanna give us your medical records, we're just gonna cut off your payments and cut off a source of, of, of financial windfall for you, right? So, and then, you know, and, and much like with a subpoena or a CID, you'd wanna talk to uh, counsel uh, and advise them of what's going on so that they can then come in and, and maybe help you deal with this. And, and is it true? Is it true? I was going to say, okay, I'm sorry. Is it, is it true that in addition to suspending uh, payments for a provider that they could also revoke a provider's billing privileges um, when billing to Medicare or Medicaid? Eric, you want to handle that? I mean, from, from my standpoint, I, I think it's always a possibility. Of course, with stuff like payment suspension or revocation of a number, they have to go through CMS's general counsel, right? So it's not just, hey, we flip a switch, this is what we're doing. They have to write it up and send it off to CMS general counsel, and G, uh, CMS general counsel has to approve it and bless it. Um, right. So they have the authority to make that recommendation to CMS general counsel to right. revoke a provider. Right. Okay. Eric, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, didn't mean to, uh, I was going to say, I would even, I would even take a step further that when you receive these letters, you know, the important piece of this puzzle is that the UPICs are not, the UPICs are working in a quasi governmental capacity, right? So these aren't, these are government contractors. They have a, they have, they have a, a five-year, typically a five-year contract with CMS to administer these pieces of the program on behalf of CMS, right? So CMS doesn't pay claims on a day-to-day -day basis. There's a contractor that's known as the MAC that does that. CMS doesn't do the investigations. They have the UPICs and the medic that do those things. And so when those letters are received, it's really, it's not a really a request, like you must comply. There's statutory language that says you must comply. It's a, there's a condition of payment that says you must comply. As a participating provider to the Medicare program, uh, you have to comply with these things. And so anything that you do that is inconsistent with the right thing to do, for lack of a better term, could result in you having a problem. And, you know, like it could be, for example, 
if you doctor up your medical records and you send those to the UPIC and the UPIC makes determinations on those records and it's later learned that those records were fabricated, you could be charged with obstruction of a governmental audit. And I've done that before. It's, there's a federal statute for that where providers have these, you know, documentation parties where they go, oh, we don't have this. And they create it. You know, one of my one of my favorite cases, one of the first cases I ever worked as an agent was this ophthalmologist on Staten Island who had been doctoring records up for years. And when we did the search warrant, he had boxes and boxes of records in his closet where he would tell his staff, give me paper. He would handwrite his notes and he would keep the original notes and then he would make photocopies of his doctored notes. And so during the search warrant, we would find stacks of these patient records. So you get charged with that. That's, you know, outside of the healthcare fraud piece, you get right. charged with the obstruction of a governmental audit because the UPICs are working in a quasi-governmental uh, manner. Now, if you if you choose to ignore this, then what winds up happening is if you don't turn the records over by the date that they're due, or you turn over some records, but not all records, well, then you've not complied. And in that audit, those claims are going to be denied. And if there's, for example, if 10 records are requested and you produced nothing or you ignored it, they're going to issue an overpayment letter for those 10 records. And then there's probably going to be a referral made over to, to OIG. You know, I think in the broadest sense, the, the, the UPIC's role is to resolve to the best of their abilities allegations of fraud, waste, and abuse. And so a resolution of that allegation could be an overpayment letter, and then it's done, right? It's a waste abuse all the way through some indicias of fraud, where then it goes as a referral to OIG. Now, always understand that at the OIG level, and really to an extent, I think at the UPIC level, there is no discerning of fraud, waste, or abuse, right? U.S. attorney's offices, I think, typically are the ones that make that. You know, as, an, as an agent, I don't think I ever looked and said, ooh, I think this is fraud. Ooh, I think this is waste or abuse. I would make a presentation to the U.S. attorney's office and go, eh, I don't think that this rises up to the criminal level. Maybe this should be something that's handled on the civil level. Or an AUSA might say that. And then they're, you know, looking back now, I think I was sort of intuitively coming up with what I thought was fraud versus waste and abuse. But I don't think that there's sort of this focus on, on doing that. On the commercial side of the world, the commercial payers will break up fraud versus waste and abuse because they have payment integrity and then the and then the SIU. But you know, I think, you know, to Matt's point, when you get these UPIC letters, you A should never ignore them. It's not just somebody asking for this. Um, it's it really is a government request. And B, um, you really got to get your ducks in a row on this, and you know, take a look and see like you know what's going on. And that and that likely does include having the you know having a healthcare attorney come in and, and take a look at this. Yep. So I want to I want to go ahead and transition to our next topic. Um, and this one is a, a bit different, right? Because we're always talking about Medicare, right? We talk all about the commercial payers, but what doesn't get talked about a lot is Medicaid. And I'm not sure why, because Medicaid is a significant payer when mm -hmm. it comes to healthcare services. Now, 
again, Matt, I want to start with you because your your work experience is fascinating to me, right? Because um, if I'm not mistaken, and I know you'll you, you, we're friends, and I know you're going <laughs> to correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I believe you were. Like, that sounds much better yeah. than my real background. Let's let's go with that. <laughs> If I'm if I'm not mistaken, if I if I remember correctly, you worked for one of the very first Medicaid fraud control units in the state of Texas. And prior to him becoming governor of the state of Texas, um, Abbott was the attorney general for the state of Texas. Correct. And if I'm and if I'm not, I'll tell you what, rather than me keep saying if I'm not mistaken. Why don't you tell us about your involvement and engagement and your evolution in that uh, process of creating yeah. the Medicaid control fraud unit? And really, what is it? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the Medicaid fraud control unit, at least from my standpoint, has always existed, right? It's 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 a, a requirement um, for, for states to have this. Uh, when I was actually with uh, the... PSC, it was Tri-Centurion. I, I think both of y'all are old enough to to remember or actually have done work with Tri-Centurion. Oh, Eric, you know you you know the name. Um, I, I I actually did work where I, I um, uh, worked with some Mufuku investigators, and that was under now Senator John Corrin. He was the Attorney General, and then Abbott came in shortly after that, or when Abbott came in and took over as Attorney General. The at the time, the, the Medicaid fraud control unit was housed solely in Austin, Texas, and I think it was a unit of about 35 people. And what Abbott actually did a good job of is looking at this unit and saying, hey, the return on investment for this small unit is actually really good. What if we expand this across the state because we're a big state and we have lots of Medicaid clients? I think our return on investment would would you know grow exponentially. So based on my Law enforcement background with DPD and my healthcare fraud experience with uh, the Medicare contractor, I got picked up in that expansion where it expanded to offices in Houston, Dallas, Lubbock, El Paso, San Antonio, Corpus Christi, the Valley, uh, which is the southern tip of Texas. It's commonly referred to as the Valley. They had an office down there, and I got picked up in, in, into that. And so we were we were very similar to. HHS OIG. We had law enforcement investigators. We had fraud. Uh, we had auditors um, that were all civilian, but uh, supplemented and supported the, the law enforcement functions. Right, they were the ones that did all the all the math for our overpayment calculations or our damage calculations. Right, for our fraud uh, uh, cases, uh, and we had assistant attorney generals. That would that we could go to and, and consult with during the course of our investigations. Some of these assistant attorney generals were also cross-designated as what we refer to as SAUSAs, Special Assistant United States Attorneys. So they were prosecutors at the federal level, um, even though they were attorney generals, uh, assistant attorney generals. And so um, we we would. Uh, receive complaints like we talked about earlier from a multitude of, of various sources and develop those cases and, and present them for prosecution. Now, is there, it, were there any inherent differences in the Medicaid fraud control unit work that you did versus, you know, what the focus was from a UPIC perspective? 
No. Um, essentially, uh, as a UPIC investigator and transitioning to a, a Mifuku criminal investigator, I, I essentially functioned fairly similarly with the differences being what I was allowed to do as a as a, uh, a law enforcement officer with Mifuku versus a, 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 an, a senior fraud investigator with the with the Medicare contract, right? Uh, so I had freedom to submit subpoena or request subpoenas from a, a grand jury. Uh, I had the authority to defend sin reports uh, that were very useful. So I just had more toys to play with uh, and greater authority, but the core function of doing data analysis, reviewing documents, interviewing people uh, was essentially the same. Got it. Let me let me ask you both this question, Eric. I'll 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 ask you first, and you may have the same answer. I don't know. Um, do you believe that fraud, waste, and abuse is more prevalent in the Medicaid system or in the Medicare system? Uh, wow, that's a great question. So, I think the issue is that it is. I think it's more from a dollars perspective. I think we'd have to look at some of the statistics to see who gets dinged more. Um, obviously, Medicare pays more than Medicaid, so one would suspect that the dollars would be higher in Medicare. However, that is could be negated by the fact that the prevalence of fraud on the Medicaid side is a lot broader, right? So, you know, the thing about Medicaid fraud is that there are things that Medicaid covers and things that Medicaid has covered that weren't covered by Medicare. And so some of the uh, cost differentiators between reimbursement can easily be negated by the fact that, for example, Medicaid covers certain types of transportation and personal care services, right? Uh, wheelchairs and livery type services and homemakers and those kind of services that Medicare doesn't cover. So um, from a from a from a dollar's perspective, it could be very similar. I have to go back and look at some of the stats because they're, you know, they're published. Yeah. I think that there's a I think that there is a, a broader prevalence of Medicaid fraud than there is Medicare fraud only because there is so many more there are so many more things that Medicaid covers in which it can stay within that dirty underbelly. Right. So the DME world, that stuff rises to the top. The genetic testing rises to the top because of the dollars. But to what extent, for example, are. Is the is the home health fraud right? We know that home health fraud on the Medicare side is very prevalent, um, but then you get to these personal care services, and you know on the state Medicaid side you have this thing now the EVV, the electronic visit verification, which you know has had some issues, um, you know on on getting that done. And so I think the the issue it's a little bit of an apples to oranges discussion because there are just differences in what the frauds. Uh, are that can be perpetuated. But I think from a dollar's perspective, you know, we're seeing that Medicaid dollars are being, uh, you know, the fraud on the Medicaid side is substantially more than it is on the Medicare side, just because it's there's, there's such it's more broadly unchecked than it than it is on the Medicare side. And also keep in mind that, you know, that when when Matt was working for Texas Mufuku, a large portion of Mufuku's funding comes from HHS, from HHS, from, from OIG and from, from HHS. And so in a year where there's a lean budget, is Matt able to work with, does he have 20 coworkers or are they doing 
reductions in force when people that worked with, with the Mafuku investigators in any state retire? Are they not backfilling those positions? You know, there are states, you know, you, I think it's Vermont, maybe, or Maine, two or three Mafuku investigators for the whole state. And so if one of them leaves, do they say, hey, that's a that's a line item we can't even afford to pay anymore? Right. right. So, Matt, let me let me ask you, because you you've been on both sides. Um, do you think the fraud is more prevalent in Medicaid or in Medicare? Or do you think, you know, uh, along the same lines as to Eric's uh, thought process and explanation? I think I think Eric's explanation i'm pretty aligned with i mean there are things that that medicaid pays for that medicare doesn't uh, medicare is is going to be primary payer on if if you have dual eligible beneficiaries which we had a lot in texas right so medicare is going to be primary medicaid's going to cover that 20 percent, right they're secondary um so it, it's it's that balancing act of okay medicare probably pays more uh, but Medicaid covers more things, right? So Medicaid pretty much covers everything that Medicare does, but also some other stuff. I think really, to me, what it boils down to is that both Medicare and Medicaid are, are ripe targets for fraud because under the Social Security Act, right, both programs have to pay for all medically necessary services. So it essentially operates on the honor system. If you're a provider that has a a, a credentialed uh, credential with either program, you're submitting a claim, that's a clean claim on a on a Medicare beneficiary or Medicaid client. Uh, your diagnosis code matches okay with your with your CPT code. You're going to submit that, it's clean, it's going to be paid, right? Where some of these other, where the commercial, from the commercial side, they might have some upfront edits that make you jump through some hoops before that claim is. So they can catch stuff, they can deny it before it gets paid out right so i, I think I, I i would say from if i'm trying to determine it's too hard for me to determine and sit here and tell you today well medicaid gets fleeced more uh for reasons enumerated by eric medicare gets fleeced more for reasons enumerated by eric right i think from my perspective it's both programs are are fleeced uh very fairly healthily uh, just because of the way they were enacted under the, the Social Security Act. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. You know, um, you and I, Eric, have a mutual friend um, who's a former Medicaid prosecutor out of New York, Riz Dagley. And, you know, it's interesting because um, you and I are, I think we're seeing more and more uh, cases now involving Medicaid, at least I am. Um, you know, I don't know if it's because, you know, there's been more of a, um, a, a focus on the Medicaid program. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about a statistic uh, a couple of weeks ago where, you know, uh, apparently the Medicare uh, trust fund has now been pushed back as far as solvency. What, back to like 2038 now? I don't think it's that much, but a, a couple of years. Or, right. Well, it, it, it's beyond the twenty twenty. No, it was it was somewhere in the twenty thirties because they they were. And I know you're going to look it up and you're going to prove me wrong as you like to do, which is it's okay with me. I got. This. He's already typing away on the computer. But, you saw him. I know. 
I know he's he, he's he's gone to Doctor Google to get his diagnosis. Twenty twenty. I do have a I do I have a PhD from Doctor. Yeah, twenty twenty six. Okay. My, my was, understanding uh, is that you're, you're thinking about, it, a little bit is is uh, Social Security got pushed out into the twenty thirty. Oh, that's that's what it is. Thank you. See, once again, I know. Take your curtsy. You deserve it. Okay. So, Eric. Um, and, and, and Matt, before I get into um, a discussion about regulation versus subregulatory guidance documents um, and really their impact on things like local coverage determinations and the difference between national coverage determination, I want to talk and, and come back to your old stomping grounds for a few moments, Eric, if we can. Um, again, you know, you started to talk about, um, you know, specific points that uh, or metrics that providers and, and healthcare organizations should be looking at on a regular basis. I think you gave eight or nine points. But let's let's talk about OIG uh, because you and I are involved in a few right now with OSIG. Um, you know, we have other clients that are uh, in the process of self-disclosure protocols. Um, you know, and I think it's really interesting um, to get your perspective as a retired agent from what you used to see to what we're seeing now in the litigation landscape. Because uh, coming off of a call not too long ago, it was a pretty aggressive stance by OIG. And I think that actually kind of took you by surprise a little bit, being a, a, a former a former agent. So. Let me let me wind you up a little bit and and kind of let you go and let's see where it takes us. Yeah, it's a, you know I think the, the 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 problem I think is that as time has now gone on, um, there's a need to be more aggressive in the manner in which healthcare fraud, waste, and abuse cases are being handled. So we, you know, all three of us are active on LinkedIn, you and I, Sean in particular, um, and there's constantly, uh, we're, we, read, we read press releases in which providers are being prosecuted for multi-million dollar frauds and the, the courts are not treating these losses the way that I think the general public would like them to be treated, right? We see these providers we're getting away with stealing millions of dollars and they're getting 18 month sentences, year and a day sentences, things, things of that sort. Um, and there's obviously, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't see. Um, and, you know, Matt and I have talked about this ad nauseum on loss amounts and this and that, but, you know, at the end of the day, we only see what's in the press release. We only know what the press release tells us. We don't know what backstories there are. We don't know any of these other things. And so there's, I think, this knee-jerk reaction to, to that, um, of that it's just unfair and what have you. But there's, a, there's definitely a more aggressive posture in the prosecution piece of it, right? The investigative piece, because we're seeing this. And in particular, we're seeing this with... Um, with instances where where a study is done by by OIG, you know, we're working on something right now where OIG did a, a study, one of the other components, you know, people, 
people don't always know there's multiple components to the OIG. There's OSIG, which is what we're talking about, Office of Counsel to the Inspector General. There's Office of Audit Services, Office of Evaluation Inspection, where they're doing analyses of things. We'll just use the general term. And then where I was, which is the Office of Investigations, you know, I used to always say the Office of Investigations were where the badges and guns were. The Office of Evaluation and Inspection was where all the data scientists were and the social scientists. And the Office of Audit Services is where all the accountants are. And what's happening now is uh, Office of Audit Services, OE, OAS, and Office of Evaluation Inspection, OE&I, they're doing analyses, they're doing reviews, they're identifying weaknesses in the program. And uh, the Office of Counsel to the Inspector General is picking up on those and then you know, taking these very strict positions um, on this. And the, I think the matter that we were just talking, kind of alluding to is this, this notion of strict liability of we're not going to negotiate with you. You violated this rule. This is the rule. This is what it said. It doesn't matter if the rule said something different now because it doesn't matter. It matters that at the time, this is what the rule was. And I think, Matt, you know, please chime in this. From a jury appeal perspective, if a, right. if a person is being tried for something, criminally, civilly, doesn't matter, and the rule was this, and when you got charged under that rule, but today the rule is different, and you actually would have some latitude in it, that is terrible jury appeal, right? Because somebody at some point took a look and said, hey, maybe we're taking a draconian approach to this, or maybe we need to rethink how strictly we should be viewing this. And, and that should be part of that metric. You know, I mean, like, the, you know, I get it in an administrative case, there's no jury, but that still doesn't absolve the common sense approach that's out there. Yeah, and and you're right. I think that does have impact on you know quote unquote jury appeal. Uh, you know, somebody will always come back and say, well, if they wanted to make this retroactive, they had that capability and they could have used that language. So their intent was to keep that conduct criminal or or uh, liable, even though we've rectified this discrepancy and made it correct, right? But again, to your original point, yeah, if you're going to try to push forward on this, that would be one of those cases as an investigator, I would look into and maybe have a conversation with the with the prosecutor I was working with, say, uh, what are your thoughts? Right. How aggressive do you want to be? Because here's the pitfalls that I see for you. Well, the interesting, so the interesting piece of that is that on these on these strict liability matters, which are really just, you can only do it this many times, anything more than that you can't do. Right. There is no investigator involved. There is no, there, you know, it's, a, it's an attorney from OSIG. And what they're really doing is they're saying, okay, the rule says this, you did this plus that, and therefore you violated the rule. And so we don't care about what any of the additional or really any of the facts and circumstances are this is this is under this strict liability you are only allowed to do this and you did more than this and therefore you're being held accountable for this there is none of the other factors in there 
that come into play. And it and I get it, you know, I get it. You know, in the thing that's always interesting is that in these studies that are done by, for example, OE and I, those are really studies that are being done to understand whether or not CMS did what it was supposed to do, right? So the one of the things that OE and I is doing is empirically testing the veracity of the program, right? So they're saying, if the rule is that you can't do more than two pinpricks in someone's eye in a rolling 12-month period, you and that's the rule. You could use a different example, but okay, we'll go with two <laughs> pinpricks in somebody's eye. Cool. And yeah. you did three I, 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 I know the folks can't see us, but I think, I think Matt and I both cringed at the same time. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And your and 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 your and your healthcare provider did three pinpricks during that rolling twelve month period, and the program paid for it. OE and I is going to say, hey, there was an overpayment. CMS allowed payments of X number of dollars to go because it didn't enforce its policy, or the max didn't enforce their policy on only allowing two pinpricks in a patient's eye in a rolling 12-month period. The problem then becomes that it's not just that CMS needs to tighten up the program, but then all of the providers that got scooped up in that study are now the collateral damage for that study, right? Mm -hmm. and, are, and, are held, and are held to what amounts to, and, and this is where Sean and I and, and, uh, and the lawyer for this one practice we're dealing with have argued is that you are holding these particular providers at a different standard than other providers. Because what you've done is you've said, okay, you know, Matt Law, Dr. Matt Lawhorn, you got, you got caught up in this study and you owe $200,000. It's really right. 100,000, but we're doing double damages because it's a CMP case. But Dr. Sean Weiss, the Mac has told you to self audit and fix your problem. And so, you've got this differentiator where providers that have done the same thing are being treated differently merely because one provider got caught up in the OENI study or however they got caught up versus another right. another provider and so in these strict liability cases there's there's oh, zero like I can tell you we just had this habit zero wiggle room like they don't even want to negotiate for a for a multiplier under double damages, unless we provide financial disclosure statements, which, as you know, is something that you really don't want to do, because right. what they'll say is, OK, maybe you can't pay that two hundred thousand dollars back in a year or two years, but you could pay it back over five years. And if you were looking to reduce your financial liability through a time calculation, someone is going to come back and say, Oh, you could pay this. It's just going to take you longer to do it. Right. So you don't want to ever get to that. And, and that's really become that's really become one of the fights that we're Sean and I and, and, and one of the attorneys that we're working with. That's been one of the fights that we've been having now is, you know, not doing these financial disclosures because of that fear. Um, and then the other half is continuing to try to find ways to get the Office of Counsel to the inspector general. To, to wiggle. The problem is, is that they don't want to wiggle because they don't want to set a bad precedent 
of treating a provider differently than they're treating other providers. So, right. you, you know, it's really, a, it's a rock and a hard place on these. Yeah, it, it really is. And that, and that brings me to <clears throat> the next conversation. So, and, and this will probably be our final conversation of this uh, roundtable. So, regulations, Matt, regulations are those that are promulgated into the law. Those are, 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 you know, they're subject to the comment period. They're put into law by Congress, by legislature. Right. Sub-regulatory guidance documents are not legally binding, right? Because right. they're not put through the formal rulemaking process. Now, one of those would be considered, one of those sub-regulatory documents would be considered an LCD. Okay. Right. So, <clears throat> so with LCDs, because this goes back to Eric in in the last thing that you were saying, which is, you know, in these strict liability cases, you know, OSIG in this case is basically looking at it and saying, they said that you could do X, you did Y, you were overpaid, you owe us money back. Now, the interesting thing in this case was being told that we don't care about medical necessity because we would expect that everything you bill to the government is medically necessary. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Right. Can you, can you talk about the importance for our listeners, um, for the NamUs members, to understand what a sub-regulatory guidance document really is and how does that differ from something, say, a national coverage determination? Well, I, I don't know that an LCD necessarily differs from an NCD, right? I, I think those are really both kind of function as guidance documents. Where the difference is, is what you talked about, a regulation that was promulgated uh, via the Administrative Practices Act, right, that for some reason somebody thought it was a good idea to absolve Congress of their lawmaking uh, responsibilities, place that in the administrative agencies under the executive branch of government and say, hey, you can go ahead, executive branch, through your administrative agencies, make laws, right? So, but in order to do that, it has to go through notice and comment, right? And that's how you get all these rules and in, in, in the Code of Federal Regulations, right? The the theoretically speaking, an NCD and LCD should be predicated on some sort of statutory authority. And I think y'all have had conversations on uh, a case that came out what last year, Alina, that got into this. You're going to say something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Azar v. Alina Health Systems, yeah, right? The right. Uh, 2019 and, and, Supreme Court ruling. Right, and and what that one, what that case was really saying is, okay, CMS, HHS, you've created this new payment methodology, and because it's a new payment methodology, it doesn't fall within this LCD NCD concept. It's an actual new rule that should have been subject to notice and comment. 
But again, mo most of the LCDs that I review, NCDs that I review, always have that kind of citation to the Code of Federal Regulations that state, you know, this is where, this is the source for this documentation. Because if you think of it just from the common sense standpoint of a guidance document, a guidance document really just elucidates your stance on what the, the policy is, right? So you have your policy and you have your guidance document that that in, in kind of clear language says, this is how we interpret this regula regulation, right? Um, it not creating a new policy, not creating a new payment, not creating, a, you know, new rights uh, uh, under this LCD is just saying, okay, 42 CFR 410-32 says this, or, or is this, this, this LCD, this explains our, our, our understanding of how that rule reads, right? And so when you, when you kind of use those LCDs and CDs to create a new right or create a new policy, that's when, when people start to get into trouble. Got it. All right, Eric, let me go ahead and give you the last word uh, today. Anything that you want to uh, specifically speak to with regard to the UPIC, the UPIC process, the Mifuku, the Mifuku process, OIG process, regulations versus sub-regulatory guidance documents. Floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, I just think the closing the closing argument on this is that look, if you're if you're a provider uh, that's intent on committing fraud, none of what we've said for the past hour actually matters because you don't care about data analytics, you don't care about getting subpoenas, you don't care about any of this. What you're going to do is when um, when Uncle Sam comes, you're going to get on a jet ski with a lot of food and a lot of water and an extra bladder for gas, and you're going to hit the road um, and you're going to go south uh, because that's what you're going to do. So if you're if you're committing fraud, uh, you don't care about the things that we talked about. If you're in that waste abuse piece, there's a combination of things that you might care about and you might care about, well, hey, I'm in this waste abuse piece, but I didn't really think I was, or I didn't mean to, or I'm not looking to get myself into the fraud piece because I don't have enough money to buy a jet ski, and I don't want to, you know, to do that. And un, uh, uh, not really the case, but um, you do not wear orange when you're in federal prison. Uh, it is a, it is a tan, it is a tan khaki. So you want to stay away from that, right? So if you're committing fraud. That's, you know, you don't care about these things. If you're in the waste abuse, you care. And that's where that data analytics piece comes into play. Understand where the government is going based upon your own data. All right. So the the um, nod to jet skis just for um, our NamUs members who are hanging out with us today. Um, it may very provider... well have jet skis because they might be successful at what they do. So let's let's not let's not you know uh, castigate them for having jet skis and assert that because they have jet skis that that they have committed fraud. That is that that's my disclaimer as nameless attorney for everybody listening. Right? If you have a jet ski, we believe you did not commit fraud, despite what my good friend Eric just said. Such a defense lawyer. It's amazing. So, I love it. <laughs> that, 
Brady. That was very that was very good, Matt. Very talented. Um, so for those of you who are wondering what we're talking about, there's a provider out of Miami, Florida, go figure, who um was under indictment and owes a significant amount of money. Um, he is a uh, Cuban immigrant. And in a matter of um, just a couple of months, he was paid about two and a half million dollars for supplies and or services that he never rendered. And in making his escape from the U.S., his jet ski broke down about 90 miles outside of Cuba. And uh, he was. Uh, transporting another individual on the back of the jet ski who is known as a human trafficker. And they had um, extensive uh, food rations, uh, water bottles, uh, special fuel cells, uh, which indicated that they were on a long journey through the Gulf Stream uh, that runs down, uh, you know, uh, along the eastern seaboard, if you will. Um, and they were captured by the Coast Guard um, when their jet ski broke down. <laughs> so the lesson learned is, the lesson here is, if you're going to make an escape on a jet ski, at least have it service first before you put it in the water. All right. Get the check engine light checked. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Get the check engine light checked. All right. So to all of our NamUs members who were uh, tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with my good friends, Matt Lahan and Eric Rubenstein, I want to say thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We hope that um, this roundtable panel discussion on UPICS, Mafuku, OIG, regulations, and sub-regulatory guidance documents uh, will resonate with you. We hope that we have had an opportunity to provide you with some solid insights from um, former and retired law enforcement professionals. Um, these guys are truly uh, experts. They are masters of their craft. Um, guys, I feel like I've known you forever, even though it's only been, uh, what, about a year and a half, almost two years that I I've really, truly known you guys. Um, and I will say it's always a pleasure. It's a privilege to hang out with you. I learn something new each and every single time. I think our members are going to be extremely appreciative of the information provided today. And with that, gentlemen, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. All right, everybody. Take care. We'll see you again on another NamUs uh, webinar. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.